El Fanboy, episode 55. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 55th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Uh, So look, we live in an age of tinkering now, don't we? If you look back at just the most recent few years of Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking, we've seen all kinds of films suddenly get totally sort of revamped and rehauled and reshaped in post-production. And, you know, it's, it's, while this sort of thing has happened probably throughout all of Hollywood's history, lately they've been getting much, much bolder with it. And I really think Rogue One, a Star Wars story, really sort of established that dangerous precedent. Uh, for those of you who are unaware, because you know, it didn't get as much press as, like, what happened with Justice League. But to recap, you know, when Lucasfilm got its, it, it got to lay its eyes on, uh, on on the first draft of what Gareth Edwards had had been working on, you know, they weren't too thrilled with it. You know, they they liked a lot of the action set pieces and whatnot, but they didn't like the way he shot it. They didn't like the tone of what he did. They didn't think it really represented Star Wars that well. You know, he shot with an aesthetic that almost felt like a docudrama from what I've heard, where it almost felt like it was like you're a fly on the wall watching the rebellion come together, and it was more like gritty and grounded and a little darker, and they just weren't happy with it. So what they decided to do was practically reshoot half the movie. You know, I'm the one who broke the story on that back when I used to write for LRM. That, you know, we had a source that, you know, worked over there at Pinewood Studios who basically, you know, told us, like, it's crazy what they're going to do here. They're going to basically work on all of the non-action scenes. They're going to reshoot some. They're going to rewrite and redo some. And, like, practically everything that's not an action scene is going to get reworked. And for that, they even brought in another writer-director. They brought in Tony Gilroy to come in and write additional material, change Act 3, and then not just write it, but direct it. Um, And the thing is, you know, it worked out, right? You know, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, more or less worked out. The critics liked it. By and large, fans really liked it. And it did very well at the box office. So in, in essence, Lucasfilm sort of got away with that, right? But if you look around, you know, th- there are other uh, other examples of this sort of stuff, you know, that have recently happened, that are about to happen, that are currently happening. You know, there's obvi- there, there's all the stuff we know about with Justice League. There's what's currently kind of going on now with Deadpool 2, which again, I don't know if it's good or bad, but, you know, they're, they're currently doing some more shooting until, uh, what's today? Today is, uh, oh, so, they, so they wrapped yesterday, I should say. They wrapped their additional footage, you know, uh, filming yesterday, the 29th. Then there's all this talk now of what happened this week with Dark Phoenix and the New Mutants getting delayed, which I've got some some intel on that. So, you know, since Rogue One, studios are getting bolder and bolder with how far they're willing to go to sort of overhaul movies. And, you know, I just, I long for the days when movies weren't made by committee. You know, when they were more about bringing a key artist, you know, like giving a, a key artist creative license to simply tell a story that means something to them and then hoping audiences like it. You know, I kind of like that mode. 
I like when it's just nice and simple like that. It's a director and one or two writers, and they've got this idea that they're really hot on, and they work it out, and they make something. It might be great, it might be terrible, but this is their baby, this is their thing, you know? But you know, it's, just, it's just not so simple anymore. Because when you think about it, you know, we live in this age of the, the cinematic universes. And, you know, with these kinds of massive pop culture, intellectual properties, a movie can no longer just fail in a vacuum and disappear. You know, now if a film fails, it can destroy an entire fucking universe around it. <laughs> Each of these movies takes an army to create. You know, just look at the closing credits of any movie, right? Literally any movie. And you'll see hundreds of names. So if you're about, you know, if you're a studio, right? If you're a producer, you're a studio, and you're about to release something that you're not confident about, and you know that the fate of two or three of these movies in your universe could be harmed by this current film being a dud, you suddenly think to yourself, holy shit, this is going to hurt and impact the lives of thousands of people working for me, not to mention it's going to cost a lot of money and lead to our consumers questioning whether or not they should give us their hard-earned dollars anymore. You know, so the stakes are fairly astronomical in this world of cinematic universes we now live in. You know, so that, that that's why I do kind of see it both ways. You know, on the one hand, I resent all the tinkering. You know, just let them make their movie. Let's see how it goes. Personally, I'd rather see a movie that I don't care for, but has a singular vision than just like sort of like a movie that feels like it came off a conveyor belt. Because then, at least, even if I didn't like the movie, I can give the director and his team credit. I can say they tried something bold or interesting or that meant something to them, and I can appreciate it for that. I can appreciate the fact that these artists brought something that was in their hearts and in their imaginations to life. You know, there, there, there's a respect in that, even if the movie sucks or even if I don't like it. Like, for example, like Blade Runner. You know, I don't really care for Riley Scott's Blade Runner, but yet I, I appreciate it for what it is. I appreciate what it is for Riley Scott and the writer of that movie and the story they were trying to tell and the ambition of it. So even though I don't care for it, I'm probably never going to watch it again. You know, I rewatched it last year to get ready for Blade Runner 2049. You know, I can at least respect it. You know, there's no respect in a movie like The Mummy, for example, from last year. You know, Universal tinkered with it. There were loads of rewrites and, and last-second fixes that were made, and it resulted in an unruly mess. And then those credits start to roll, and you see, like, ten different people credited for different story elements and screenplay elements. And it's just, you know... <sighs> there's no respect in the situation like that. There's no respect in what happened with Justice League, which is a movie I actually like, mind you. I, I don't love it, but like I've said before, I like the hell out of it. And yet, who do I credit for that like? You know, who gets the points for Justice League? Not Snyder, not Whedon, not Johns. It's just this faceless conglomerate of a movie. It's a Frankenstein's monster with no Dr. Frankenstein. You know, so I just, these movies made by committee, all of the tinkering, it's like, I understand why they do it. I understand the importance of trying to get this right, or of at least trying to make sure that your universe doesn't get derailed. But, you know, it's just, I, I, I long for the days where it's just a director, one or two writers, and here's a gorgeous movie.
Here's a singular vision. You know, if you look at some of like our favorite movies of the last few years, our unanimous favorites, right? You look at movies like Logan and The Dark Knight and Wonder Woman, you know, usually it's just a director and like two writers. If you go look at the credits, it's like two writers on the screenplay. You know, like Wonder Woman had a couple extra hands for like story, you know, a couple other story credits. But remember, story credits don't mean all that much. It just means that they came up with the overall general arc. But when in terms of Wonder Woman, only one person has a screenplay credit, and that's Alan Heinberg. <clears throat> you look at Logan, which was just nominated for an Oscar for, you know, its screenplay. And, you know, and it's got three writers, but one of them is director James Mangold. Like, that movie is his baby. The other two writers were clearly there to help him flesh out his idea. So Logan has that singular, like, that is James Mangold's baby. So whether you loved it, whether you hated it, you can think of that movie and you think of James Mangold and you think of Hugh Jackman and you you know, you know that this was what they wanted to do. This is the story they wanted to tell, come hell or high water. Um, so that's just kind of my rant on that when it comes to the age of tinkering. Like I get it from a business standpoint, but it really is one of the negative downfalls of the cinematic universe concept. Because since movies can no longer just fail in a vacuum and disappear on their own, and now you know they could take several movies down with it, every, you know, all the studios feel this need of like, well, we'd better, you know, we'd better just let's delay it and let's let's bring in new directors and writers and let's completely change it. And I, and you know what it is? I feel like it, it hurts writers and directors from the outset, really. Now, like, imagine this. Imagine you're a director or you're a writer, and you have this great idea, but you know now that the studio you're working for can at any point decide, you know what, this isn't good enough, so we're going to totally kind of revamp it. Wouldn't you then write it differently? Because you know, all right, listen, I can't get too married to this because it may end up being totally different. So let me just sort of keep the guts of this. Let me come up with like a safer version of this because what I'm writing now is essentially just going to be a template. It's going to be a backbone because by the time this thing ends, who knows what the final product is going to be. So you even write it safer. You write it more tentatively. You write it without, with much less confidence and much, much less passion and much less force because you know at the end of the day, your movie could get taken away from you. You know, look at what, what's going on with Lord and Miller, which we're going to get into later in the news segment. Um, you know, your movie can be totally taken away. So what's the point in giving it your all in the from the outset and making the greatest screenplay you've ever written if you know that all it takes is a, apparently a couple of crappy test screenings and boom, now your movie is out of your hands. You know, so to me, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate symptom of this whole uh, shared universe, cinematic universe concept. And, you know, it's, it's, it's troubling and I'm curious to see, you know, if anyone outside of Marvel Studios is going to be able to get it right. Um, because, all right, so let, let, let's talk about Fox, let's talk about Marvel, let's talk about these big delays that are going on with Dark Phoenix and with the New Mutants. So um, I think that it's two different scenarios with those two movies, by the way, um, and I'll get into that. So with the Dark Phoenix, you know, I spoke to someone very directly, very directly involved with the project. I'm not allowed to reveal their name. 
But trust me, after last week with uh, all the shit that happened with the Aquaman trailer, I'm being like extra double careful and gun shy about who I speak to and what information I get. And just let me tell you, this person, it's I'm almost like embarrassed that they responded to me. Like, I can't believe it. I, I did not expect them to respond to me. And this, and by the way, this relationship goes back now almost about a year and a half. So this person is a very well-connected central figure in the X-Men cinematic universe over at Fox. And I remember I reached out to them like a year and a half ago, just on a whim, just kind of like I had the cojones. I'm like, fuck it, what's the worst that can happen? They can ignore me. And I remember I reached out to them and by the end of that very same day, not only did they write back to me, but they were very open and candid and forthcoming. And then we basically kind of became pen pals since then. So I've got someone over at Fox who is very close to this situation. Um, and I asked them, you know, what's going on? I asked specifically about Dark Phoenix because with New Mutants, I think the writing's on the wall. But when it comes to Dark Phoenix, I'm like, you know, what is the story there? Because it's not even that substantial a delay. You know, November to February is not that big a deal. And I'm like, you know, what, 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 when, what, what, you know, why? Just dime por qué. Why is this happening? And according to this person, who shall remain gender neutral and as mysterious as humanly possible, um, according to this person, it was more of, you know, it was a studio decision. Not a director decision, not a creative decision. It was a studio decision. And when it comes to Dark Phoenix, it seems to be almost entirely for business reasons. You know, they just saw what Black Panther did by releasing on Valentine's Day weekend. They remember what their own movie, Deadpool, did back in 2016, opening on Valentine's Day weekend. And they looked at the movies being released around November and December of this year, whereas what the marketplace looks like in mid-February of next year, and they said, you know what, screw it, let's delay this thing you know, three months and put it out during Valentine's Day weekend because audience audiences now have been conditioned to exp you know to expect like a big event, awesome superhero movie around Valentine's Day. It's like a perfect counter programming when you think about it. Most people are looking for rom coms, people who don't want to see romantic comedies and Fifty Shades crappy movies and all that sort of stuff. You know, having an excellent superhero movie there as an alternative is brilliant. So when it comes to Dark Phoenix, look, you know, I, I'm, you know, there are going to be some reshoots. I, you know, I've read the rumors, I've read the reports. You know, I know that that's happening, but apparently it's it's much less like that. Like that's not the real reason for the delay. You know, that stuff is happening, and that's you know that is for better or worse part of the filmmaking process these days. But apparently, it was a studio decision primarily made for business reasons because they like the idea of taking that Valentine's Day weekend and taking advantage of it after what they just saw Black Panther do. Um, when it comes to New Mutants, now this is more just me, you know, interpolating, you know, because this person, you know, I didn't ask them about that movie because to me, it seems pretty clear what's going on with that movie, which is there, there is a strong sense from Fox that it's just not the movie they wanted. You know, they're not happy with it. So they're going to do like a big, crazy overhaul of that. You know, I've read, you know, rumors that they're going to almost, they're, they're almost going to pull a Rogue One where it's like 50% of the movie is going to get redone. I don't know if it's the tone. I don't know if it's Josh Boone's um, directing style. I don't know. You know, that I couldn't tell you. 
But, you know, the, the, the sheer scale of this delay for New Mutants, because mind you, it was supposed to come out in like two weeks. It was supposed to come out on April 13th. Then they switched it to February 22nd, and now it's August. So that's a 15-month delay for this movie. So that has nothing really to do with business and more to do with the fact that they're worried about this movie. They think it's a clunker. They think it's a dud. Um, but sort of what's interesting to me, you know, it's to kind of circle it back to how we started this episode, you know, New Mutants doesn't strike me as the kind of movie that has a lot riding on it. You know, it doesn't seem to have, like, it's not like a mainline X-Men franchise, which is supposed to continue on in theory. You know, Fox is trying to operate under the assumption that Disney is, you know, uh, not going to just totally scrap them soon, which, you know, I think we all know they are. But, you know, they're trying to approach it from a different vantage point. So it's not like it's a mainline X-Men film where if this stumbles and the franchise is basically dead because they can't afford another stumble after X-Men Apocalypse... Yeah, New Mutants is really kind of like a side story with all new characters and an all new cast. So I'm kind of confused as to why it's such a big deal to get this one right. You know, I for me personally, I'd rather just see what Josh Boone did. You know, it, it's it doesn't have a huge budget. It doesn't have a lot at stake. Just let it come out. Let us see what this, you know, what it is. You know, so this gets me wondering, like either... Fox is gravely overreacting to how the, the current condition that New Mutants is in, or maybe there's more to that movie than we thought, you know, because right now it, it's been treated as just this interesting little edgy horror movie X-Men spinoff, but maybe there is more at play here. And they did have higher ambitions for what the New Mutants sets up and where they're going with those new characters. And that's why they're going to do this big overhaul. You know, I, I honestly don't know. Maybe I should ask my source about that. But, you know, it just it seems to me that, that that's the situation here when it comes to Fox. It doesn't have to do with Disney. It doesn't have to do with any, any of that other stuff that people are concerned with because that's not going to be an issue uh, for a long time, and the, the sale is not going to go through for quite a while, and Fox is still acting totally independently. So when we talk about this stuff, the key is to understand that it, it centers on Dark Phoenix being moved for business purposes and New Mutants being moved for uh, you know creative reasons and that sort of thing. Um, and before we get into the week's news and before we sort of close out this topic, you know my my fascination in this thesis today about you know handling these movies and the stakes and having to sort of revamp and redo and overhaul them and all that sort of stuff you know a lot of that started last week when you know I was speaking to some of my Warner Brothers people while trying to figure out exactly what happened with the Aquaman trailer and and how it is that I was given you know uh, faulty information um and in speaking to someone over there, we, we kind of changed, you know, switched gears a little bit and started speaking about the DC Entertainment brand and sort of the frustrating element of what's happened there over at Warner Brothers and, and why this person who works for them thinks that, that it's faltering. And, and they, they think a lot of it has to do with the shared universe thing. You know, they, according to them, the studio really wants the shared universe concept really bad. You know, they really wanted to make this Justice League movie really bad. They've been trying for years with the Justice League mortal stuff with George Miller. You know, they've been trying to get to this bigger, larger-than-life shared universe with all these different heroes for a long time. But the problem is, 
the way they approach it, it's more about IP than story. It's IP over story is how they put it. And I'm like, that's brilliantly painful to read, you know, because that's the thing. It's more about the intellectual property. In other words, it's about moving products. It's about selling toys and lunch boxes and T-shirts and trying to handle this as a, a marketable product rather than trying to tell compelling stories. You know, of course, they want a good film, this person told me. But with DC, you know, with, with DC, Harry Potter and Lego, you know, there's this huge expectation to move product. And that, that seems to be one of the overriding things. And that tends to get in the way of the storytelling. And that's one of the reasons, mind you, that the studio kind of turned its back on Snyder. Because, you know, they wanted, they wanted to sell action figures. They wanted to sell, you know, <laughs> plush dolls and Lego sets of Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. But, you know, let's be honest here. BVS, that was not really a movie for kids. You know, it was not a kid-friendly movie. And so the toy sales were hurt. And in general, you had people deciding not to bring their families out to see it. So kids were not even really introduced to this mythology in the right way. Because both Man of Steel and BVS were not really kids' movies. That doesn't mean that there weren't kids who liked it. Of course there were. But in general, in terms of the tone, in terms of the outlook, in terms of the way you sell this thing... You know, he wasn't making family entertainment or things with mass appeal. So that's one of the reasons that Warner Brothers had to, like, pull the rug out from under him and try to do what they could to go broader. And that's why, you you know, you see all these beautiful things happening now with Shazam, where it looks like it's going to be very open to families and very endearing and very kind hearted. You know, none of this is by accident. None of this is a mistake. You know, Warner Brothers wants these movies to appeal to as wide a swath of people as possible so that it, it, it so that it connects. It connects as a movie and it connects as a piece of product that will move other products. Um, and I asked him, you know, I, I asked, uh, oh, I shouldn't say him. I'm not going to run I asked this person. <laughs> I'm not going to edit this either, so I don't even know why I said that. But I asked uh, this person. Um... If Walter Hamada is changing the culture there at all. And all they really said was, hang on, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. Yeah, you know, the, 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 you know there is a hope that he will. You know, the, 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 there's everyone sort of like pulling for him behind the scenes. But for now, all they're saying is that, you know, the, they know that he will at least make things scalable in terms of budget. You know, and, 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 and kind of bring forth the mantra that not every film needs to hit a billion. You know, the, the, there seems to be like the, the main area where they see him implementing lots of changes is in terms of how the money is handled. Because I don't know if you read, you know, we put up a very analytical piece uh, late last week written by Aaron Verola about the return on investment on these Warner Brothers superhero movies. And that's a huge concern for them. You know, they spend a metric ton on these movies and the return on investment has been less than stellar, which is sad to say. It's hard to believe when you think about the fact that like the first three or four you know, uh, DCU movies made over three billion dollars, you know, like combined. You got to think like, oh, wow, they should be laughing all the way to the bank. But then when you factor in the budgets and the promotional costs and the ancillary costs and all that sort of stuff, their their profit margin was like, it was nothing to write home about when you factor in how much they invested and how much they threw at the screen hoping to create magic for you. Um, 
So, you know, so that, that apparently seems to be priority number one over there under Hamada. That's where they're seeing the bulk of his efforts into trying to, like, change the budgetary system over there, trying to make sure that these things have healthy expectation, expectations, that not everything needs to hit a billion. Sometimes you just need a good, simple story that sells and captures people's imaginations, and that's got to be okay. Um so anyway, that, that is my, uh, my little DC insight for the week. Uh, I was really just struck by the whole thing, that quote about, you know, at Warner Brothers, it seems to be IP over story. You know, the, 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 the IP over story thing has really stuck with me. And I'm sorry if I've said it over and over again. But yeah, I think that's such a brilliant way to just sort of break it down as to where things have gone wrong and what's led to so much of the drama. And they need to get back to basics and just tell great, engaging, endearing stories again. And I think the whole thing will uh, rectify itself. But okay, um, it's now time to play some music that longtime L Fanboy listeners haven't heard in a long time. Because I, I, you know, I did retire the news segment once I launched the Revengers podcast. Because that show became the news segment with, with my co-hosts, uh, Brett and Vanessa. But now, since we didn't have a Revengers podcast this week, I am going to get into the week's news. So since we didn't get the Revengers this week, I do have Brett Thomas Miro on here with me. How you doing, Brett? I am doing well. How are you? Uh, you know, I've got an awful lot of you this week. If you think about it, we had a we went to that uh, the shit arcade on Monday night, and then we saw Ready Player One last night as part of the Revengers watch party. And somehow I'm not sick of you. Are you sick of me yet? Yeah, and you forget I also saw you last Friday as well. That's just it's just too much. It's, it's been so much. much. How do you feel like going from like never seeing me to seeing me now too much? <laughs> I honestly, I, I need a little break, but uh, no, I'm kidding. I love you. Brett. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you know, let's talk about Ready Player One. We saw we saw that last night with a couple of listeners and contributors, and it was a very nice outing. Um, but, you know, so let me just ask you, what did you think of the film? Having not read the book, what did you think of Ready Player One? I really enjoyed it. Um it's one of those things where... Oh, and hang on, I, I, sh- I should have... say this won't be spoiler. Anyone listening, you don't have to worry. We're going to avoid spoilers until next week. So go ahead, Brett, sorry. Yes, yes. Um, it's one of those things where I think about, did I like it just because of the nostalgia and all the things I recognized and love and enjoy? Or did I you know, like it on its own as a film? I feel like I still need to separate that. And that seems to be, right, like the major criticism. I think yeah. people come, you know, oh, it's just a nostalgia fe- fest, but... Listen, uh, overall, I have to say my initial reaction, it was a fun, interesting film. I enjoyed it. I liked all the elements. And yes, I loved the nostalgia too. If I do pull that out, I do still think it was it was an enjoyable film. All right, good. If you were to assign a letter grade, I'm just going to put you on the spot. What would you what would you call it? Um, I think I would give it like probably like a B plus. Oh, all right. Well, that's exactly what I gave it. So we're on the same page. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After the movie, you know, I went out for a little postmortem chat with a couple of the fellas and the overriding sense was A minuses and B pluses. So we all seem to be on that same thing where it's like it was very good, not great, but very good. Um, and yeah, so now you know, I've seen it twice and I have a, a written 
non-spoiler review on the uh, on the website on revengeofthefans.com. You should guys should go check that out. But you know, now having seen it twice, you know, I, I'm I'm sticking with my B plus mark. It's a film that, you know, I felt like it has all the elements to have been like an instant classic. It could have been just one of these all time Spielberg movies. Um, I I felt it was held back by a couple of things. I felt like the um, the human stakes were very kind of greatly decreased, and that's something that I can really hit on as someone who read the books. Yeah, I read the book. Yeah, in the book, there there really is like a palpable sense that these these players are in danger even in real life. So when things are happening in the uh, as they're trying to get the keys and all that sort of stuff, you know, you're worried about them on, in a very real life or death way. In the movie, the stakes are kind of vague. And at worst, you know that one of these heroes you like might die, but if that happens, all they have to do is go respawn because the real human player is still there. So the stakes for me were kind of underwhelming. I thought the score was just, you know, very sort of generic aside from the cool little nods to like Back to the Future and stuff like that. But, you know, and then the, I, I, there were also just some characters who I felt were very vastly underutilized. And, you know, so those are my three main critiques. And at, having seen it twice, I, you know, I, I can really settle into those three being my main issues. Aside from that, I really did think it's a great time at the cinema. I think I found it fun and exhilarating. Um, and I actually disagree with all the talk of the nostalgia and all that sort of stuff. I actually feel like it's a movie that that it has a bunch of old stuff in it, a bunch of references to pop culture stuff, but it doesn't rely on that. Like the story doesn't have any sort of longing or wistful yearning for the days of the past. It doesn't make you wish, oh, I wish we lived in the 80s. It doesn't have that sort of affectation. Those things are in there because it's necessary to the plot because the Oasis was invented by a guy who loved the 80s. But the story itself does not try to tug at your heartstrings in, in a nostalgic way. You know, so I, I actually don't find it to be that nostalgic and I actually find it to be kind of a misnomer to call it that. But I understand what you mean when you say like, you know, obviously you see some old video game characters and references to movies you like and it, it can sort of... Um, affect and and uh, and uh, inform your opinion on the movie. But I actually don't find it to be particularly nostalgic. I actually think it's sort of forward thinking when you think about the fact that it's set in the near, like post-apocalyptic future, which if you're someone who's worried about climate change, if you're someone who's worried about pollution, if you're someone who's worried about how humanity is moving further and further away from each other and just going into their devices and staying at home and not shopping and having everything delivered to them and never having to interact with another human being, you know, it actually is kind of a comment on where we are and where we're heading. So I actually find Ready Player One to be very sort of forward thinking. And I tend to bristle at the idea that it's just a collection of nostalgic, you know, visual gags, you know? Right. And, you know, one of the things I, I think the whole nostalgia thing is is a lot of criticism, criticism that's been leveled at the book itself. So, yeah. You know, and the movie itself is an adaption of the book. So it yeah. does – I get what you're saying. It is kind of a misnomer because it's like, well, they if you don't like the book because of that, of course you're not going to like the movie. It's adapting the book. So yeah. that's kind of one thing too that I you know have – you know that's still mulling around in my brain. 
Um, also, I do agree the human stakes were not high enough at all in the movie. Um, I never felt a real sense of palpable danger. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, and also I was just so dazzled the whole time. I also cannot tell you anything about the score. <laughs> so I agree it was pretty yeah. – I don't even remember the score at all other than the Back to the Future chimes. Exactly. Um, There's like nothing there. So that, that's disappointing. Um, and I do find uh, Ty Sheridan – I just – I wish there was someone a little more magnetic and engaging Mm. uh, in the lead role. I find him a little like flat and maybe that is a result of the stakes not being high enough as well. But he just, you know, as as the, you know, the person I'm supposed to like bank everything on, uh, you know, I wish there was someone like another actor that was a little more engaging there. Um, So that would, I guess I had the level of those criticisms, um, you know, again, having just seen it last night, I feel like I always need the stuff to percolate a little bit more um, and maybe a second viewing, but that would be my initial my initial um, criticisms, and some of this might be addressed in in the book. I actually I have the book. I I've ha- I plan to read it, um, so I'll probably check that out. Hopefully in the near future. And you totally. <laughs> um, I wanted should, to read it before, way. but it- <laughs> yeah, I told you this last night. And to anyone listening, like if you've read the book and you're or or if you've seen the movie but haven't read the book. You know, something to consider is the book and the movie are actually fairly different in terms of the way the story unfolds, in terms of the way everything evolves and develops. The movie takes a ton of of creative license. And I actually think it like in, in, in many ways it improves on the book, but also it doesn't detract from it ever either. So if you see the movie and you're intrigued by this world, don't think that the book is just going to be a retread and a rehash of what you've seen in the movie. It, it goes far more in depth, and everything you know happens in a in a much different way. So I I do think both of the both properties, both forms of Ready Player One, can sort of stand on their own as their own unique experiences. So if you've seen the movie and you are curious about the book, still check it out. If you've read the book and you love it, go see it. If you've re- if you've read the book and you hated it, still go see Ready Player One because it actually fixes a lot of what's wrong. Um, and you know, while, while we're talking about it, I was going to bring this up later, but why not? Let's just go for it now. There's a story uh, with writer Zach Penn who, you know, he addresses all this stuff about the nostalgia and it's got some quotes on it. So Brett, if you want to open that up, I'm going to start reading the, the, what he said about it in a conversation with cinema blend. Um, Zach Penn addressed the whole nostalgia thing like this. He says, I think I tweeted something to the effect of, if you think Steven Spielberg is going to make a movie that just fires a string of references at you, you must not have seen his films. I mean, I wouldn't write, I would, I wouldn't write that either. But the idea that Steven would direct a movie like that seems insane. It's not like there's not a story in the book. There's a clear story and there's characters. Yes, at times Ernie goes on with his reference with his references because he likes to because it's a book and it's his right to. We were never going to have Wade read off a string of references or walk through the entire movie War Games, nor did Ernie want us to. And by the way, he's referencing to the fact that in in the book in one of the gates, you have to reenact a movie and it's like beat for beat, note (laughs) for note. And you even get bonus points. If you say the lines in the movie with the same inflection as the actor, it's pretty cool, but it would not have worked as a movie. They, they, they had to change it. And then, you know, we're not going to spoil, but they have a great way about rather than inter, you know, reenacting a movie, you, you live inside of a particular movie for some time in this one. And it's pretty awesome. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> then there was another quote here. You know, uh, you know, other critici- criticisms were about the abundance of Overwatch characters seen in the trailer and the references. You know, um, people just worried that like it was going to be a bunch of shallow, random references. And to that, Penn says. I obviously, given my age and the stuff that I do, I get all the references and they're cool to me, but I never thought the movie would live or die on its references. Even now, when I read fans who are like, oh, is it just going to be a bunch of characters from Overwatch? They just happen to be in the trailer. They're just background. It's just that everyone in the background happens to either be a created character or a licensed character. And I kind of, I agree with him there. Where, like, it's never, like, focused on, nothing ever hinges on these characters. Nothing nothing ever hinges on whether or not you've played these games. You don't need to have a prerequisite opposite. It's all um, a prerequisite knowledge of these things. It's just kind of there. It, it kind of just, it's like a bonus. If you, if you see a character that you know or like in the background, it's treated as just a way to kind of amplify how you're feeling. But it's not, it doesn't actually control the narrative. It doesn't slow things down. It, it's not like the, the essential building block of the story they're telling. A lot of this stuff with the video game characters and the movie references is just there as sort of window dressing. There is a real story being told, and that real story has nothing to do with nostalgia or video games or movies from the 80s or 90s, okay? Right. Um, it's like all of the extras are people you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, think yeah. of it that term. That's, that's the, I think, a way to boil it down. Yeah, that's true. A lot of times when you see these big sort of battles on screen, it's just a bunch of faceless extras, and you, know, and you just kind of like, all right, it's a bunch of CGI extras what the hell do i care here it's that but you actually like oh shit that's sub-zero from mortal Kombat. like oh shit that's goro you know like it's it's cool you know it just it, it kind of it adds and it heightens it makes the background a little more fun but it doesn't really affect the main story so i think that's an important thing to say at the absolutely outset here about ready player one um now you know let's talk a little box office because, you know, the, the movie, the, it, it opened last night officially. It also had some Wednesday previews, so there are some real numbers to report here. And, you know, the Wednesday night previews made $3.8 bucks, pretty good, ahead of projections. And now last night's numbers are already coming in, and it looks like it's got, it made like $12.1 bucks, which elevates the projections. At some point, they were saying it was going to be in the mid thir- mid to high 30s. Now it looks like this weekend it's going to make 49.4 to 52 million dollars over the 4-day Easter weekend. Might even do more cuz the whole thing is people like it, it it seems to be outdoing expectations. And as um as a a a rival analyst, a a rival media analyst uh said about it, um it's kicking ass. <laughs> the movie is doing better than people thought. It's got an excited fan base. It's it the it's just if for some reason it's 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 starting to sort of spark. It's, it, the, the 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 property is coming to life after several months of people not being sure whether or not this was going to work. And obviously, it's gonna you know it's gonna live or die on whether or not the the word of mouth is strong. And the good news there is it got an A minus cinema score. So that is pretty good. You know, the, 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 the opening night cinema score is A-, minus, so that's going to be what the film has. And that means that people are going to likely go around and tell their friends and family, hey, you should check this out. So this movie is going to live or die on that. And honestly, I hope that the word of mouth is strong enough. I, I would love to see this movie do really well up until Avengers Infinity War comes out. I would love it if most of April is us still talking about Ready Player One. Um, 
Because, Brett, you weren't here for this, but earlier in the episode, I was talking about the importance of singular vision and the idea that a movie isn't made by committee. And to me, Ready Player One really is a singular vision. You know, th this is Ernest Klein's baby. And Steven Spielberg and Zach Penn all work together to, to, to bring this story to life. And whether you love it or what, whether you hate it, this is Ernest Klein's baby, and it's Steven Spielberg's baby. I guess they're the you know they're the mom and dad. They're the parents of the baby, um, <laughs> and I just feel like that's commendable because you could tell that th you know, this came from the heart and the mind and the imagination of one core person, and he just surrounded himself, luckily, with the two other people in Spielberg and Penn who could help bring it to life in a way that's really special. So I hope this thing does really well. Um, I don't know, Brett, are you going to be telling people to watch it? Yeah, I'll absolutely be recommending it for sure. Um, like I said, I really enjoyed it overall. It was a good film. I definitely want to check it out again. Um, I was even joking last night when we got out. I'm like, I can't wait for the Blu-ray so I could go frame by frame yeah. and <laughs> yeah. see every little reference. And I'm sure some websites have done it already, but I want to do it myself and try to see. Like, It's almost like Where's Waldo? Yeah. Um, so now let me ask you, because I, I spoke about the about the delays for uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix and the New Mutants already, but now I kind of want to like flip it on its head and just ask you a question, you as a fan. So let me ask you, uh, where do you stand with the current X-Men cinematic universe? You know, the Fox X-Men movies, the spinoffs, the mainline movies, like, is, is that a franchise you root for? Is that a franchise you've shrugged off? Is that, you know, do you have any sort of passion for it or are you just kind of over it and you're waiting for them to go back to Disney? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I might have commented on this on the Revengers podcast before, but yeah, I'm, I was when X-Men first came out, I was all in. I was so hype. I was such a big X-Men fan, X1, X2. And like I said, even X3, I was I was an apologist for that movie. <laughs> I was I was an X3 apologist for such a long time. Um, and uh, so, yeah, like that early trilogy, um, I, I, I loved I, I, I really admired it. Obviously, they had some, you know, you know, misses with X-Men Origins Wolverine. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I didn't see Apocalypse. I skipped out on that one because Days of Future Past uh, didn't really succeed in getting me uh, all pumped up. I enjoyed First Class. So I, it's been very hit or miss in the more recent films, you know, with the exception of like, you know, Logan and if you want to count Deadpool in that, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a uh, thing. Th those are movies that I really hold in high regard. I enjoy. So I could go I could go either way. Um, Dark Phoenix, I mean, awesome storyline. Of course, yes, I want to see it. But um, yeah, I, I could if they goes back to Disney and they give it a break and then reset it. I'm actually I'd say I'd probably lean more towards that end at this point. Um, I, I don't think everything has to be a slave to continuity and canon. I understand changes need to be made for, you know, time's sake in movies and just the fact that something's a film and not a comic. But that, that it just seems like such a weird jumbled mess right now. And it almost feels a little bit like they're just sticking it in different decades and time periods just to make it a little more interesting and different than what came before rather than like an actual necessity or need or like that it's really, uh, I guess – commenting on that time period or using it in an interesting way. You know what I yeah, mean? Like with yeah. first class kind of going back into what they were in like the seventies or something, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, Apocalypse was eighties. I, I didn't see it. Yeah. Apocalypse was eighties and now the dark Phoenix will be in the nineties. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know that, that to me. So like kind of just going back to ready player one, that to me seems like more of a nostalgia play. <laughs> Yeah, in a that's way, interesting. using yeah. that decade as a nostalgia play to get people back 
into it, but I, I don't know. And like I said, I haven't seen Apocalypse, so I guess I can't speak, you know, perfectly to this. But, you know, you tell me if you feel that they've used those decades to their advantage in any way by like utilizing, you know, things going on at the time. See, I, uh, I think they, they 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 started well. I felt like First Class really felt well, like Cuban a 60s, Missile Crisis. Right? Yeah. And, and it felt like yeah, you know, the, they used the whole 60s thing and kind of like the early Bond days with the espionage feel for Michael Fassbender's uh, Magneto. Like I felt like they used the 60s really well. I thought Days of Future Past did actually a pretty solid job of capturing the 70s in terms of the styles and the feel and the music and the political climate at the time. But then, yeah, X-Men Apocalypse, I, I, I found it to be underwhelming in, in, in how little it embraced the 80s. I kind of expected it to be a little more, a little more tongue-in-cheek, a little more fun, especially with Brian Singer. You know, I thought he would have had some more fun doing an 80s period piece but honestly, I feel like Apocalypse could have been set in any decade and it wouldn't have really mattered. It was just a ho-hum experience. Um, right. And yeah, right now the 90s are super hot. Uh, you know, all kinds of shows are, are being set in the 90s and 90s music and fashions are coming back. You know, one of the big songs in the country right now is Bruno Mars' Finesse, which is a total throwback to the 90s. And the music video oh, yeah. on the set of uh, In Living Color. And it's supposed to sound like Belle Biv DeVoe Poison with that drum machine. You know, like the 90s are having a moment right now. And it does feel like this movie is trying to capitalize on that by doing the 90s thing. And heck, even uh, Captain Marvel is going to be set in the 90s. And there's some cool set pictures of her walking around in jeans and like band shirts from that era. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, though, where it feels like it's becoming kind of a gimmick and I don't know if the 90s are really going to do anything to elevate the movie. But again, you know, I don't, we haven't seen anything yet. I would love to see a trailer for Dark Phoenix before I really comment on it. Um, more than anything, you know, when, when you heard this news, Brett, did you shrug? Did you, did you give a damn? Or is it like, all right, they delay those movies. I don't care. Yeah, I was kind of <laughs> just like, all right, whatever. All right. I mean, again, I'm always, I'm always of the mind, too. Like, they delete it. There's got to be... Well, you would hope <laughs> there's not always got to be, but you would hope there's a good reason they see something's not working with the film. They want to, you know, fix some things, correct some things. Maybe they just wanted to get out of the way of other releases that they know are coming out around the time that they feel might hurt it. You know, I, I don't know you yeah. know, what everyone's thinking there, but mm -hmm. I'm always like, hey, you know what? Uh, it, it's kind of a there's an old uh, Shigeru Miyamoto quote. Um, it kind of applies to video games, but I think it applies to movies too. Um, a delayed game is eventually good, but a bad game is bad forever. Oh, um, I like that. That's great. Yeah, I mean that's Nintendo. I mean Nintendo delays their games. Uh, Zelda gets delayed like I feel like three years <laughs> every time. They're like it's gonna come out 2015. No, it's 20. Like I think they delayed Breath of the Wild like two or three times, pushed it back a year. So, yep. but how good did that game come out? You know, oh, so that's yeah. what they say. You know, I'd rather delay the game, make it good, because if we release it bad, it's just bad, and everyone's gonna say it's bad forever. But you know, we make people wait a little longer. And eventually we can give out, you know, them something really special. And that totally applies, I think, to any kind of media, um, yeah. you know, especially translates well to film. So no, I totally yeah. agree. And that's something I was saying to people earlier this week on the Twitter when this news first came out. I was saying, listen, this doesn't necessarily mean bad things. You know, everyone wants to jump right on the all. Oh, everything's fucked. What's oh, going we're trained on? to that now, right? Oh, there's yeah. reshoots. It's bad. It's bad. It's Justice League all over again. And it's and like, I feel you like that rather... movie kind of did that, right? Yeah, like, wouldn't you rather a movie get you know all the time it needs to be as good as it can be, uh, rather than have it rushed into theaters half baked? 
you know, and it's a fine line because earlier in this episode before I brought you on, I was talking to the idea of like, can we just let these movies just be whatever it is that they are? You know, the, the, I, I'm tired of the studios coming in and deciding, all right, we're going to reshoot half of it and overhaul the whole thing and throw the original script out the window and change it and fix it. And they kind of take the movies away from the filmmakers. In this particular case, I mean, I, I, it doesn't sound like they're taking it away from the filmmakers. It sounds like they're just allowing the filmmakers more time to improve their movie. So I'm like, I don't mind that at all. You know, delays are not inherently bad. And personally, I'd rather wait a few more months than get something that's like where the effects don't look finished, where the whole thing seems thrown together and you're wondering, what the fuck am I doing here? What happened? You know? Right. So... Good. Okay. Now, uh, while we're talking Fox and we're talking mutants and all this, you know, we, we broke a story earlier this week on RevengeOfTheFans.com. Uh, you know, we labeled it a hot rumor, but it pretty much has been confirmed. I've spoken to people who've seen the movie. And Julian Dennison, the uh, the little kid that, that was spotted in the most recent Deadpool 2 trailer, you know, he will be playing Rusty Collins, a.k.a. Fire Fist, in Deadpool 2. Um, and I, I, I don't want to get into, like, spoiler stuff here, but it's interesting what this tells us about the storyline. Because, you know, in, in this movie, he's just a kid. But apparently the way it's going to play out and, and what kind of makes me intrigued by the story is that, you know, he grows up to be a very violent, dangerous mutant. And ultimately, he kills Cable's family. And that is why Josh Brolin's Cable comes back in time because he wants to off this kid before the kid grows up to be what he becomes. And that's where he and Deadpool sort of go head to head because Deadpool doesn't want the kid killed. And there's basically this internal struggle about whether or not they could change the future, whether or not killing the kid fixes anything and whatever. It actually sounds very sort of like Terminator-ish. But um, like, what do you think of that sort of plot approach, Brett? I mean, that seems fine to me. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm like, I, I'm, um, I have fallen off the X-Men bandwagon a bit. I was definitely like peak X-Men when, like I said, the initial movies came out and of course the 90s cartoon series. Yeah. I'm not super familiar with Cable and this, but I mean, I, I understand he's a time traveling mutant and everything like that. So I, I mean, hey, that sounds like a good reason to get him to come back. And, well, you know what it is? It sounds like it's got a little and, more like heart, a little more depth to it than I expected. Because, you know, the first Deadpool was very kind of like lighthearted in a way. And, yet, you know, it had some depth there in terms of the romance between Wade and Vanessa. But overall, you know, I felt like it played things sort of light. It was just, you know, it was just for laughs. This one sounds a little bit more hard hitting if we're talking about killing a child to try to defend your family and these questions about fate and the future and destiny and whether or not we can really change the future. And, you know, it sounds like a little bit more um, heavy than I expected. And I kind of like that. Yeah. I kind of like that they're kind of going bigger and deeper and more interesting. Um, but a little subplot here that I'm very fascinated by too is that, remember, Tim Miller was going to direct this. The same guy who did the first Deadpool was going right. to direct this. And then while they were developing the script and coming up with the movie, something happened. Him and Ryan Reynolds butted heads, and then Miller left. And what I'm, what I'm intrigued by is that this plot is very Terminator-ish, right? Yeah. And what did Tim Miller do as soon as he left Deadpool 2? <laughs> he signed on to make a Terminator movie with James Cameron. <laughs> 
So a part of me is just wondering if just like, you know, they had different ideas for how the dead, about how this plot should go with the time travel and the future. And when he walked away, he was just like, well, fuck it. Then I'm going to tell my actual Terminator, you know, time travel movie the way I want to do it. And I'm going to do it with the actual Terminator. So that's just something that I find like a funny little bit of trivia. If, um, yeah. if this really does become like, if, if this is Deadpool by way of Terminator, and then Tim Miller makes a Terminator movie. It's going to be curious to see, like, I wonder which ideas he incorporated into his Terminator movie that would have been part of Deadpool 2, but that's why, you know, him and Ryan Reynolds hate each other now. They don't hate each other. I'm just, you know, being dramatic. Right. Um, but no, it's, you make an interest. it's an interesting interesting point to bring up. And, you know, it uh, the movie, yeah, definitely, I like that, you know, this time around, like, Deadpool's, like, defending this kid. And, like, you, like you said, there's definitely uh, more stakes um, and yeah, it's more maybe heart. not as personal. It's more about the wider world, um, which is, uh, you know, pretty interesting for, for you know, for, yeah, the, for Ryan Reynolds to play. And doing all this world building. You know, I would love to know what it is that their additional uh, photography was for, because according to The Hollywood Reporter, you know, it's testing pretty well. So it, it's, it's sort of mystifying that they're still apparently tinkering with it. You know, that I, I reported last week that, you know, they were shooting up until yesterday, the 29th now. You know, they, they had some scheduled reshoots and additional photography in Vancouver. And I'm just like, well, what are they adding? I'm, I'm so fascinated. But again, this doesn't seem to be a case where the studio has taken the movie away from David Leitch or away from Ryan Reynolds. They're just trying to give them more time to, I guess, to further improve and, and develop their ideas a little further. Just to me, it's just like, all right, we're cutting it a little close here. You know, the, the, the well, the rumor was cameos, right? Or like maybe like post credit sequences. Yeah, that, I thought well, that, that was a kind of floating around of why some of this photography. Yeah, there was, was going like a well. super secret cameo apparently shot in uh, in California. Like they they went to Hollywood. So uh, I I think I know what that's about. I, I I just so you guys know, like I've basically been told the entire movie. So I know the exact plot, <laughs> but I'm just I'm you know, I, I I think I know what that could be, but I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, but in general, you know, it, it does seem like it was a few extra weeks. So th there's even stuff that I know that may get scrapped or changed. That's another reason why I'm not going to talk about it. So I'm wondering really, like, what are they doing that's so important that they're reshooting through most of March for a movie that's opening in the middle of fucking May? I'm very curious. But again, I don't, you know, it's not good. It's not bad. Could be ugly. I don't know. But the whole point is, it's, I, I just find that whole thing fascinating. All this, this age of tinkering that we live in now, where a movie seems to be never done until we actually see it in theaters. Um, but, you know, th there's an X-Men Marvel mutant movie that I, I'd be surprised if it ever comes to theaters. And that is Gambit, which now has a uh, new production date. You know, this is a movie that has been, like, on the cusp of happening for years now. We're talking years upon years. I think it goes back to, like, X-Men Origins Wolverine when they had, uh, I don't even know who Taylor they Kitsch. Yes, they had Taylor Kitsch playing Remy LeBeau, and there was talk that he would get his own movie, and then that obviously fell apart for many reasons. And then eventually Channing Tatum got on board and then there was going to be like the Doug Lyman version of it and then that fell through. Then there was the Gore Verbinski version and then that fell through. And it's just, it's been, it's been a nightmare trying to get this thing going. Um, but according to Omega Underground, Fox has set things up to begin on June 19th of this year 
with the Gambit movie. Meanwhile, they haven't even announced who the new director is going to be. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. what is going on? But I don't know. Do you have any opinions about Gambit? Do you, do you need a Gambit movie? Or at this point, would it be worth it to just wait until Marvel owns everything and then just introduce Gambit under the Marvel Studios banner? Yeah, I'm just confused. Like, I'm wondering if this has anything to do with the sale. Like, if maybe if Fox gets more things, like, in production, they can get more money from Disney before the deal <laughs> finalizes. Like, I wonder if there's some kind of, like, uh, strategy to some of this stuff getting moved around or, or like, getting, you know, announced. I, I, yeah, at this point, with everything so up in the air, I just – I would hate to see them make this movie and then it just gets erased if the whole Disney deal goes through. Yeah. I also – I do not like this casting of Channing Tatum. Um, I'm not the biggest Channing Tatum fan. Uh, he's good in some good performances here and there. I feel like he's kind of hit or miss, but I, I do not see him as Gambit at all. I, I think this casting is terrible. The second they announced that I didn't like it. I like the character though, but I'd rather see him introduced, I think, in a more ensemble setting. So personally, I'd rather wait to see if we get an X-Men reboot and then I want them to bring like the 90s cartoon like team together. That's yeah. what I really want. That's what I want on screen. Um, so I, I, that's really what, I, what I'd see, rather see. Yeah, I, I honestly feel like the ship has sailed on Gambit. You know, I feel like... Yeah, I'm you not know, even interested. <laughs> when the first X-Men movies came out, I remember it was a big deal. Like, when are they going to bring Gambit in? Because remember, you know, the, the first X-Men movie came out in 2000. And then the next one, I think, came out in like 2003. So we were very close to the 90s. We were very close to that very revered version of the character. And everyone was dying to see Gambit on the big screen. But that was fucking 15 years ago. You know what I mean? 15, tw almost 20 years ago now. And I'm just like, I think the ship has sailed. I don't know what the mainstream appetite is for Gambit, especially if it's going to be sort of disconnected and possibly rebooted as soon as Marvel fully takes over everything. Like, I, I don't see the upside here. Um, yeah, and to introduce a solo film with him, I just, like you said, I think... I don't know if people really have him as much in the X-Men consciousness anymore. He's yeah. not really in the forefront. You know, I don't even hear a lot of rumblings about him on comics anymore. Like, I don't see a lot of, like, yeah, people just, just talking about the character at the, all, the like, you know, regardless of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, so bring him back in an ensemble. Let's get, him, like, someone in there that's interesting that can, like, stand out. And then, then we can branch him out on, like, a solo yeah, then, adventure. Yeah, like, if he takes off and everyone loves this new Gambit, then give him a solo movie. I just, I, I don't like, see... Like, Wolverine you could stick in a solo movie. Like, you could just put a solo movie anytime, anywhere, and people love Wolverine. They're going to flock to it. Like, yes. Superman, Batman, um, you know, a, a lot of these, you know, Spider-Man. Those are characters that you can just pop out whatever you want, whenever, and that's going to be a guaranteed hit. But I don't know, Gambit, I mean, there's even right i mean aren't these supposed to be making like a kitty pride movie i know yeah. she's actually pretty popular um and does have a pretty rabid fan base but i'm like i don't know if like is anyone you know clamoring for that is that you know gonna you know really bring people to a solo film that's gonna like you know do well and like justify the the cost yeah. and the production well you know i mean you bring up uh, like an interesting point too like i wonder if there is some sort of business benefit for fox to try to crank out as many of these as they can before Disney fully owns them. I wonder if there is something to like the sale price or what it means for their stock owners, the stockholders or whatever. Because it is right? kind I of fascinating. 
<laughs> like, What's that? The more inventory we have, the more money you have to give us. So like, yeah, like we have these production costs that they could like maybe they could write off the production costs and then get Disney to pay for them in the sale and then like you know like I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be some I, weird I hadn't thought legal loopholes. <laughs> if there are any uh, like you know business lawyers listening to this and you want to let me know, please email me at mfr at revengeofthefans.com If there's anything possibly to that, if because it it is fascinating that like th- listen. Disney is about to own this thing. You know, it's very unlikely that this sale goes away, right? So within a year and a half from now, Fox will not be operating independently. And yet, they've just announced the Kitty Pride movie. There was talk about a Doctor Doom movie. There was talk about a Silver Surfer movie. Now they're scheduling Gambit for June 19th. And they're putting all this effort in, apparently, to try to get Dark Phoenix and the New Mutants right and, and, and make them successful and, and viable. Like, what what is this urgency by Fox to greenlight as many of these you know, Fox Marvel properties as they can when they know it's probably all going to be for naught once Disney owns the whole thing. It's, you know, I, 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 I want to find out more about that. So maybe I should do some research, but if anyone out there knows or has a hunch or is listening to this and wants to help me help us, uh, please contact me. Cause it, it, there is something very sort of suspicious about all of these green lights going around. Um, right. So, all right, so now we're going to switch gears a little bit, head over to DC. You know, there was some big casting news for Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman 2. It's an actor who I adore. I've loved Pedro Pascal for years. Um, you know, I... You know, at first I noticed him on the FX series Lights Out, which didn't make it for more than a season, and that broke my heart. But he played this Armenian boxer, and he had all these tattoos, and he was this weird, eccentric character. And then one day, I'm watching an episode of The Good Wife, because I used to, you know, I used to work on The Good Wife. And I'm watching it, and I'm like, this lawyer guy, this very like square-jawed, clean-cut lawyer guy, looks very familiar to me. And then I realize he's the same person who plays the Armenian boxer in Lights Out. I'm like, oh, wow, this guy's very versatile. Then the more I kept watching him in things, you know, I saw him pop. I mean, he's the lead in Narcos. He was in Kingsman last year. Like Pedro Pascal. And then, oh, in Game of Thrones when he played Oberyn. Like, oh, you've never seen Bre- uh, Game of Thrones, you insane moron. I mean, I love you. Bread of Thrones. Yeah, Bread of Thrones. I can't believe it. <laughs> and I'm sorry I called you moron, but dude, you need to get on that. You need to get on Game of Thrones. But listen, so Pedro Pascal (laughs) is an awesome, awesome actor. And now he's entering the DC universe. He's going to be in Wonder Woman 2. Everyone wants to know who he's playing. And the funny thing is, like, I do have a quasi-direct line to him. You know, we became pseudo-friendly when we both worked on The Good Wife. Because after I recognized him there... You know, on TV, I approached him on the set the next time I saw him, and now we're Facebook friends and all that sort of thing. And I have asked him for some sort of clarification up to now. I'm going to look now while I'm speaking to you to see whether or not he's uh, addressed any of my questions about it. But, you know, he acknowledged when I congratulated him for booking the part, but I have since asked him because the, the, the two of the big theories going around are the character Vandal Savage 
And this other character named uh, Sebastián Ballesteros, this Argentinian character who uh, actually becomes a cheetah. He be, apparently, there have been multiple cheetahs in the Wonder Woman mythology, and he becomes the fourth cheetah, this male cheetah. We know Kristen Wiig is playing... I keep. I feel like I've said Cheetah seventy three times in the last two minutes, but <laughs> Kristen Wiig is playing Cheetah. So you know, the, the, when you look at the way the characters designed Sebastián Ballesteros, you know it's not hard to imagine that he could be playing that character, um, or that he could be playing Vandal Savage. So just know I'm on the case. I'm trying to communicate directly with with Pedro to find out if he'll tell me. Chances are he's under lock and key and can't really. Um, you know, reveal anything until the studio tells him he's allowed to. But just know I'm on the case. I'm trying to find out who Pedro's playing. I'm dying to know. But either way, I'm ecstatic about this casting choice. Uh, do you know anything about Pedro Pascal, Brett? Um, I do not. I just know that, yeah, he's on Narcos. <laughs> uh, well, hang on. Do you watch Narcos? Uh, no, I did not watch oh Narcos. Oh my god! You know, you have a lot of TV viewing to to catch up on. You gotta watch Game. Of I watch Thrones. a lot of things. I watch a lot of other things. You watch bad things. You gotta. I don't watch, watch bad things. I watch no bad things. You know, you, you should get your own podcast called Brett Watches Bad Things because if you're not, that actually sounds like a great segment. I'll right? watch some bad shows and talk about them. <laughs> you know, we should we should bring that onto the Revengers. Brett watches bad things on this week's Brett watches bad things. But anyway. Um, <laughs> You got to check out Narcos because he's great in that. And you got to check out Game of Thrones. First of all, the series on their own are just phenomenal series. But on top of that, they'll give you some background on who Pedro Pascal is. And you as an actor will appreciate his craft because he's one of these guys who totally like transforms into his characters. And, and, and they, they couldn't seem more different than from each other and from who he is as a person. He's a real cool, groovy dude. And <clears throat> he plays these characters with these very like hard edges who are very sort of extreme out there characters. Just, you got to see them. So either way, just wanted to touch on the fact that Pascal is going to be in Wonder Woman 2. And the two running theories are Vandal Savage or Sebastián Ballesteros. Uh, you know, it could end up being neither of them. But just know I'm on the case. I'm trying to find out. And Brett needs to watch more Pedro Pascal. And that's all I'm going to He's say playing Batman well. <laughs> okay. Anywho, and by the way, he has not responded to me yet. So, you know, I'm still waiting. Um, we're going to switch over to a little Star Wars. Because it's funny, Mark Hamill seems to be very chatty lately. <laughs> He's like, it feels like yeah. every other day there's a headline, Mark Hamill said this. Mark Hamill said there wasn't enough ham at the craft service table on the last Star Wars movie. <laughs> I Mark... want to see that headline. <laughs> Mark Hamill says there's not enough ham at the craft service table. I mean, he's, he's nitpicking everything. Um, but you know what? Th this next thing is one that I totally agree with, and it's about the fact that they cut this little scene um, where we see Luke mourning the death of Han Solo. And you know what? I don't want to get into the, uh, into the mode of, of armchair quarterbacking and, and trying to go like, how could they cut that? Blah, blah, blah. Especially because like, I've been vocally against the people who do that for Justice League. You know, there, there, there have been these cut scenes that we're seeing now that every, you know, a lot of people are like, how dare they cut that? Why would Joss Whedon do this? Warner Brothers is clueless. And I'm always kind of the first to say, like, well, listen, 
We weren't in the editing bay. We don't know what led to that scene getting cut. Maybe it disrupted the flow of the, of the movie. Maybe it gave away something they that they would have rather had for a surprise later. You know, I try to be very reasonable with these things because I know that at the end of the day, we're all just outsiders looking in. We don't know why things get cut. But when it comes to this, it's very hard to understand it. It's very hard to wrap my head around it because it's only 17 seconds. This one shot, and, and I heard that there might, there might have been another scene with like Han's funeral. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about this one 17-second shot where you see Luke alone in his little hut and he's just being crushed under the weight of, of, of his sadness about the news that Han Solo has died. And I'm like, we really couldn't have found 17 seconds in this movie to include that. Would that have really changed the flow of the movie? You know, it, yeah, to me, it really kind of... I 100% agree. Right? Like, it's it just, to me, it speaks to, like, the, the, the fact that Ryan Johnson seemed to, like, he wanted to avoid sentimentality, and we had to bring that word back up again, nostalgia, a lot. He really kind of wanted to make, you know, um, The Last Jedi about the future and, and, and taking away some of the... Uh, I don't know, the sort of magic and, 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 and preconceived notions people have about the mysticism of Star Wars. So I feel like he might have cut it because he thought it was a little too sentimental or a little too schmaltzy. But man, those 17 seconds are killer because you see in the performance everything that Luke is going through there. You know, he's weighing out the decisions he's made to, be, to, to go in, into hiding versus fuck, I could have helped my friend and, and I'm finding this out from this stranger and I should have been there. Like there's so much in the 17 seconds. It's so loaded and he plays it so beautifully that I feel like more moments like that would have made this movie more special for me. Instead, it's a movie that to me has some great moments, but overall misses the boat on a lot of other things. Um, but did you see the, 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 the 17 second clip? Like, you know, like how do you feel about it? Yeah, no, that, that just seems like something that should have been – that could have and should have been left in the film, especially, you know, spoilers um, if you haven't seen Last Jedi yet, you know, being the fact that, you know, Luke bites it in this one. Like yeah, we could have had a little more time with him, uh, and, you know, mourning like Han and just, you know, there should have been more time with him, period, uh, being that this was his final film and to just cut that out just seems like – why? You know, we, we, yeah. we missed him the whole, you know, first, uh, you know, Force Awakens, the start of the new trilogy. And then here you don't give him like, you need to have those moments. <laughs> I know. I know. It, it really would have helped his character's arc land too, to really help you understand why he did what he did, why he's going to do what he's going to do eventually in that movie. You know, I just feel like it would have, it would have, um, achieved quite a bit in only 17 seconds and I think I you know I think it was a mistake but again I also think it's a mistake for us here with uh to be sitting around in a in a in, a, in our own apartments deciding what Ryan Johnson should have done you know so I, I don't want to venture too much further into that territory listen Mario when we're right we're right you know what I mean <laughs> yeah when we're right okay um and speaking of like Luke's death and the limited amount of time that we got to spend with him uh, you know, Hamill was still feeling even more chatty about Star Wars when he revealed how the final episode would have ended had they gone with George Lucas's original outlines for the trilogy. Um, 
He said, you know, I happen to know that George didn't kill Luke until the end of Nine, after he trained Leia, which is another thread that was never played upon in The Last Jedi. So this is, I mean, that, that's a pretty loaded sentence there. So let, let, let's unpack that a little bit. So Lucas did intend for Luke to die, but it would have been like as part of the grand finale of the entire saga. You know, that he wanted that to be at the end of episode nine, Luke, you know, goes off into the sunset or the dual sunset, I should say. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I can't help but feel like that would have been a more powerful way to go. As we've discussed, I wish we had more time with Luke and his death would have felt much more circumstantial, much more important. Had it been saved for the very end, it would have been a very interesting bookend to kind of have that be how the Skywalker saga ends. Um, have Luke represent all the ups and downs of the Skywalker clan. And with his death, you finally close that chapter in the in this you know saga. But either way, you know, that that's what Lucas had in mind, and they didn't go that route with it. And apparently he also trained Leia, which is interesting. So in Lucas's thing, you know, Leia would not just remain this force sensitive being. At some point in this new trilogy, he actually would have trained his sister. And that to me, opens up some interesting storytelling possibilities. I'd love to see what a what a uh, a Jedi Leia, or at least a, a Leia with real Force powers, was going to be used for in Lucas's movies. But uh, you know, what did that quote do for you, Brett? Yeah, with uh, it's interesting, right? I, I like for him. To, I you know, I almost hate that he brings this up. I know, I know. <laughs> you know in a way, shut up, Mark. Stop it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like, just be quiet. Go eat the ham. Go eat the ham. <laughs> be quiet. There's not enough um, of it. Yeah, like, because you say this, and then it's like, you know, it just it makes you get into that, like, you know, what could have been yeah. uh, kind of mindset. Um, I, I like we, you know, we've kind of, you've said, I think I've said it it's on one of these recordings somewhere. Yeah, I, he should not have died in The Last Jedi. He should have gone on into Nine and then probably, you know, bought the farm there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I necessarily needed him to go into a whole Leia training thing. Um, I would have been fine continuing the story we have where he's, you know, continuing to tra- train Ray. Um, but yeah, there definitely should have been more time with him. It should have been the, you know, kind of the end of this, like you said, the Skywalker saga could have been wrapped up with a nice, neat little bow, um, with him kind of extending into nine. Um, but at the same time, obviously I'm sure what's going on now is different than, than Lucas's draft. Cause they kind of threw all that out. But and, and by the way, I also fucking- never wanted this. Yeah. No, I just, like, just, I'm sorry. Just like, but how fucking weird is it now that for all intents and purposes, the Skywalker saga has wrapped, but there's still one more episode left in this trilogy. Like, I think we've discussed this before, but episode eight felt like a conclusion, not like it's leading to a continuation of this story. You know what I mean? So like, there's no, there's no more Leia. There's no more Luke. And there's no more mainline Skywalkers alive anymore. And granted, they're going to find a way to, you know, deal with Leia's, you know, uh, no longer being around now that we've lost Carrie Fisher. But for all intents and purposes, the Skywalker saga has ended. And yet there's still one whole other movie that has to happen now to give it a truly satisfying, quote unquote, conclusion. Like, isn't that like a little strange? It almost feels like nine is going to be the start of a new trilogy. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, right? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I have so many questions, but like, I don't know how they're going to wrap up this trilogy when basically eight gave them the, the a, a blank canvas to start a new one. So I'm like, 
I like I almost feel like eight should have just been the end and then it leads into Ryan Johnson's new trilogy of and make it about Broom Boy and make Ray more of a, a side character. <laughs> Broom Boy. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> like to me that almost would have made more sense. Like now like JJ Abrams has has this thankless task of telling a story where all the main characters are dead or unavailable. Unless we're going to do ghost characters now, which listen, they're going to do force ghosts. I think that was always planned. Oh, but I just, yeah. I don't know. I just, I feel like he wrote them into a corner a little bit. Johnson did, and 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 that's something in general that I have found interesting about the creative process on this new trilogy. Uh, and there's another quote from Mark that I, I want to read before we go into this, and then you know, so so okay, here's the quote. He says about this new trilogy, seven, eight, nine. You know, George had an overall arc. If he didn't have all the details, he had sort of an overall feel for where the sequel trilogy was going. But this one's going more like a relay race. He's referring to this new trilogy. It's more like a relay race. You know, you run and hand the torch off to the next guy. He picks it up and goes. You know, Ryan didn't write what happens in 9. He was going to hand it off to originally Colin Trevorrow and now JJ. You know, it's an ever-evolving, living, breathing thing. Whoever's on board gets to play with the life-size action figures that we all are. Now, I see that worries the fuck out of me. And it's something I've been saying since The Last Jedi. I feel like... This is a weird approach. I would much rather have them to have had a very firm outline for what these three movies were going to be. It doesn't have to be Lucas's. It could have been whatever J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan came up with originally. Or, you know, just I wish they had one solid game plan. Because right now, for me, episode eight feels like it retcons a lot of episode seven. And we've already gotten teases of the fact that episode nine could retcon some of the things that happened in episode eight. Like, it doesn't feel cohesive. It doesn't feel like we're all telling one long story here together. It feels like every creative team is getting a chance to kind of like figure out what plot elements they want to keep, what plot elements they want to ditch. And, you know, it's kind of like evolving and reshaping as it goes. And I don't like that. I don't know, but like, so like, do you think there's any issue with that? Do you, do you wish that there was an overall arc that they would have stuck to? Or are you kind of cool with this whole, okay, I'm done. Now I'm passing it off to you and now you do what you want with it. No, I do wish there was like an overall arc, but two, two things I kind of wanted to put in here, I guess they kind of go together. So one of the things is that if we did keep Luke alive for nine, I did. I never wanted nine to just end up being a Luke Kylo Ren showdown because yeah. that's just Luke versus Vader again. So yeah, no, I'm kind of glad that. that that's not happening because I figured I, I got nervous that that was going to be the thing and it's not. But the other thing, too, is almost so like we we're kind of just saying like eight feels like it kind of ended it and nine's almost the start of a new trilogy. And in, in a way, just because of the way, yeah. you know, eight ended. But. The nine also like nine is now going to be the, I guess, ending of this trilogy. And it almost feels like they're just getting started at the same time. Yeah. Like, I feel like there hasn't been that much of an adventure yet. You know what I mean? To like yeah. wrap it up. I feel like they really just got their footing, you know, um, almost like I feel like now there should be another like, you know, two movies or another trilogy or something like that to like get the story off the ground. I feel like seven and eight were just like, you know, the beginning. Yeah. It didn't feel like a beginning, middle, and we're going to an end. It feels like two beginnings, 
and now I'm just jumping to an end. There was well, see, no middle. I, well, well does, in fairness, I think Abrams number seven was the beginning of what would be the end trilogy. I feel like he set certain things up that had they been followed up a particular way in eight, right. we made a beginning. Come, but yeah. then eight was a beginning. It was another beginning <laughs> and an end. Like I don't know. Yeah, just, it was like it's very strange. I it, really it is. Wish. They should have had more of like a planned arc. They probably should have handed it to Kevin Feige. Let him do it. The Star <laughs> oh, Wars boy, cinematic. That's gonna get you some hate because Feige is a very polarizing figure. But I know what you mean, though. Like, yeah, the no, idea I, of... I, I kid. I don't want him to touch it. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but like, you, know, you know what I mean. It, it would have helped to have someone yes. one leave the connective tissue architect. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's oh. I. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Brett. Um, and while we're talking Star I that Wars, was Kathleen Kennedy. I thought she was that person. Well, that's the thing. That was... I feel like she, you know, I, I think she's still trying to figure out what type of uh, department head she wants to be. You know, I spoke about that a few episodes ago on on this very show about the fact that like the 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 the, the philosophy at Lucasfilm seems to be evolving because when they first came into it, she seemed to want to just be the sort of like benevolent producer who's there to just encourage and support and give you what you need. And I'm hiring all these exciting young filmmakers and let, let's let them put their stamp on it. But then every step of the way, she's been micromanaging them and becoming more and more like, well, now I'm steering the ship. You know, I'm the captain now. So I think, uh, you know, I, sh- I, I think that that's still ever evolving. I don't know. You know, maybe she, maybe once we've moved past the original trilogy, you know, right now we're still dealing with the legacy of the original Star Wars films. Maybe once episode nine is done and we start moving in a fully new direction with Ryan Johnson's new trilogy, with uh, the, the guys from Game of Thrones, you know, the Weiss and Benioff, they're making their own Star Wars movies. There's going to be more standalones. There's going to be the John Favreau live action TV show on the on the uh, Disney streaming platform. Like maybe once we get past episode nine, all those things can really be filmmaker driven and she can just let it go. Cause right now, technically she's the custodian of Lucas's characters and she seems to feel a responsibility to make sure that they get treated the right way. So maybe she'll let go of the reins a little once Lucas's characters have worked their way out. You know, um, that, that is my hope. Um, right. While we're talking about how hands-on Lucasfilm has been and how they've been retooling things, our final big story today centers on this uh, weird... Honestly, I I find it very peculiar that Vulture ran this story. Um, It's very much like backbiting, and it seems very sort of spiteful and strange. But, um, you know, Vulture ran this thing with an actor who refused to be named, who spoke about their time and experience on uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story. And it's got some very interesting quotes in there, which, Brett, I've been doing a bunch of the readings. So I'm going to have you do the, the quotes on this. Um, so first things first, about Lord and Miller, where they were talking about more or less what a mismatch they were. Uh, this actor kind of shed some light on their process and, and, and whether or not they were really the right fit for this property. So, Brett, why don't you read what this unnamed actor said about Phil and Chris? Right. So the, the mystery actor went on to say, Phil and Chris are good directors, but they weren't prepared for Star Wars. Um, after the 25th take, 
the actors are looking at each other like, this is getting weird. Uh, Lord and Miller seemed a bit out of control. They definitely felt the pressure. With one of these movies, there are so many people on top of you all the time. The first assistant director was really experienced and had to step in to help them direct a lot of scenes. And that reference to the 25th take, is a, it comes from apparently a story that they relay to Vulture that apparently they were doing nearly 30 takes of every scene. And in between takes, and you, Brett, as an actor, can understand how frustrating this would be, there wasn't much direction. It was just the, the director going, okay, let's do it again and just do it differently than last time. Yeah, you know? do it different or my favorite word, which is uh, more. Do yeah, more. I, I need more. More of that. More. And more. Yeah, like I give me something specific to work with. So reading that, like I, you know, maybe from also being an actor once upon a time, I, I can only imagine how frustrating that is if that's indeed true because they did refute this later and I'll, I'll we'll get to that in a second but the idea of doing 30 takes of every scene without much direction for how to vary the performances that sounds like a recipe for frustration and disaster it's wasted time it's wasted money your crew and your cast are losing faith in you it seems like a very thankless situation it seems like an approach that works if you're doing like a small ensemble comedy where the, the, the spirit of improvisation is very much alive and we want people to really explore the space and make new discoveries. But in this kind of situation where you already have a script that you love, you have a, an established property that everyone has certain expectations and, and, and things that they want from it, you know, this was not the type of movie to do that with. Um, right. But in terms of with Ron Howard coming on, they spoke about what it was like when he joined the production. So w what did the unnamed actors say there, Brett? Yeah. So uh, mystery guy said <laughs> when he came on, he took control and you could feel it. He got respect immediately. He's really confident, a really easy guy to work with. There you go. Um, so it sounds like he came yeah. on with a very sure hand. And, you know, they, they were doing more like two or three takes per scene. And he knew what he wanted. He knew how to get it out of his actors. He shot it. He got it. He moved on. You know, th th that actually reminds me of what I've heard about what, what it's like working with uh, Clint Eastwood as a director. Clint Eastwood is also notorious for like one or two takes. And that's it. He knows what he wants. He gets it. He moves on. Um, and what, what was notable here, too, in terms of talking about what Howard had to do was, you know, Howard shot a bunch of stuff and some people might assume that there's a bunch of like, you know, new rewrites and new scenes, but apparently it really had nothing to do with it. He actually shot the same script. Why, why, why don't you read on that, Brett? Yeah. So he, he basically says it's exactly the same script. They're filming exactly the same things. There's nothing new. Um, he said Lord and Miller used whole sets, but Ron is just using parts for those sets. I guess they're not shooting wide angle, maybe to save money. So you know, the, the last part is just more of a technical end. You know, he's doing you know, cl uh, close-in shots, and that, to me that sounds budgetary. That way you don't have to rebuild every aspect and every nook and cranny of every set that Lord and Miller did. You could just get in right on the actor who's delivering the dialogue. Um, but either way, in terms of the script, you know, it's interesting. It really just comes down to they didn't like how Lord and Miller were telling this story in terms of like the tone of the scenes, the liberties that they were having the actors say with the lines. But so all they really wanted by bringing Howard in was a return to the actual script. You know, they wanted the same script that Kasdan and his son, that Lawrence Kasdan and his son had worked on. That's the movie that Kathleen Kennedy wanted. And it sounds like that's not the movie that Lord and Miller were going to deliver had they been left to their own devices. So that's just an interesting little you know, piece too, because with a lot of these movies that have been overhauled like this, 
what's come with it is new material. You know, with Rogue One, there was a bunch of new material. With Justice League, there was a bunch of new material. Here was just, let's get back to the actual material that this was supposed to be. So I find that very interesting. Uh, the next and final thing that I find fascinating you know, as an actor is the fact that apparently Alden Ehrenreich, uh, you know, they brought in a uh, an acting coach in the middle of production. You know, once Howard came on board, they brought in an acting coach just to help him get the right, just to help get the right performance out of him. Because apparently under Lord and Miller, he was more like making it his own and they were trying to pushing him to make it like quirkier and different and sort of a, a unique take on Han Solo. But it sounds like the studio really wanted him to just be a younger version of Harrison Ford's Han Solo. This is something we've discussed ad nauseum on the Revengers podcast, you, me, and Vanessa. The idea of right. should he be making it his own or should be he should he be trying to honor Ford's Han Solo? And it sounds like the studio agrees with me that the whole making it your own thing is kind of uh, – it's not what people want out of this movie and it doesn't make sense. But why don't you read uh, what they had to say about what they wanted of, uh, of Aaron Reich? Yeah. So they said uh, trying to mimic Harrison Ford is really tough. Uh, Lucasville wanted something very specific, copying someone else. Alden's not a bad actor, just not good enough. Um and then I think just to I guess to continue on um, whether regarding whether uh, Iron Reich pulled it off, um, he, the mystery actor also said you could see his acting became more relaxed. He became more Harrison like. The coach helped. Now you see that for me is very comforting, and I know that you know, people will bristle at that. This idea of the impersonation, or is he trying to be Harrison Ford? But like, listen, you know, and I tweeted about this, but it's like he's not making he's not reinventing han solo he's not playing an all new take this is not a reboot this is not the start of a new han solo this is a younger version of an established character so in that way he has to try to do what ewan mcgregor did when he played obi-wan where yes he played a great obi-wan and we love him and we can't wait to see him back in the role but it didn't really directly conflict with the alec guinness version of the character it felt like oh i could totally see how this Obi-Wan grew into that. You know, Ewan McGregor was able to find that middle ground between, you know, taking it seriously and bringing his own heart and soul to the role, but still not doing it in a way that distracts from what we know he becomes. And if Aaron Reich was doing something that was drastically different than Harrison Ford and not properly trying to honor Ford's iconic performance and the 40 years of Han Solo that we've gotten to know and love in, you know, across all these different mediums. Remember, Han Solo's only ever been shown one way, whether it's the movies, whether it's his appearance in video games, whether it's in the books. He's always, you know, people know what Han Solo is, who he is, what he's supposed to look and sound and feel like. So... I am totally on board with Aaron Reich being encouraged to really try to, you know, channel that, to really honor and be like a young Harrison Ford. That's, you know, maybe that's an unpopular opinion. I don't know. How do you feel about that, Brett? Well, I'm torn because, I mean, in a movie with a character and, and being, the, you know, this being like a prequel to the, you know, Han we grew up with, 
there is uh, obviously an expectation of some kind of character arc. He might start off a little bit different in the beginning, but by the end of the movie is pretty close to the Han we know and love and grew up with. So I'm torn uh, as an actor. And you, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not, because I know how you feel about Han Solo. But, you know, when you you don't want when you go on a set, you don't want to just do an impersonation of somebody. You do want to bring in some of your own experience and chops. And there may have been an opportunity to do that earlier on in the film, earlier on in Han's arc. You know, maybe he is a little more. I don't know what he is, but a little more, you know, a little less cynical in the beginning, a little more, you know, funny in a way. But then something that happens over the course of the movie, over that story arc, you know, kind of changes him into that, you know, more like, you know, hardened kind of kind of rapscallion kind of guy. So I'm torn because I feel like there there should be some room to add a little flair. Yeah, you can't stray from it. And at the end, he needs to be he needs to be Han and he, and he needs to be Han the whole movie. Right. But. So I'm torn with that. Just seeing someone do an impersonation of it, then that just brings out the issue with doing this movie in the first place, right? Because you're doing a prequel to a blood – like Rogue One works great because there's like nobody in there that, you know, was like repeated with the exception of, you know, the the Leia, you know, kind of (laughs) de-aging CG and, yeah, Tarkin and then, you know, Vader's in a suit so it doesn't really matter and you got James Earl Jones do the voice. Absolutely matters so you could get away with that a lot more than this when you like you said you are that's like them going back to go do another like a young luke movie like no <laughs> you know yeah. like we're like you know farmer luke <laughs> teenage farmer luke it's not gonna it's just not gonna work so them doing this is problematic in the first place but like i said from an acting standpoint i sympathize you know like you want to do something that's your own but a lot of this you know at least I have to say this this mystery actor is at least consistent in how he's explaining things because it does sound with Lord and Miller's more loose approach and improv heavy and like let's do 30 takes. Um, it, it was giving him too much freedom to do it on his own and, and maybe things weren't coalescing. Yeah, like maybe he's the, the kind of actor that needs a strong director to, to kind of rein him in. You know, yeah, some, you know, some of us need that. <laughs> You're right. Like I hadn't thought of that angle, but it's true. Like he's not a very well experienced actor. He's young. He's only been in a handful of films. He's still finding himself. And that approach might have been leading him astray. He probably needed someone like a Ron Howard to come on board and say, this is what I need you to do. These are the marks I need you to hit. This is the tone that I need this scene to have. And go do it. You know what I mean? Some people work And he needed to do it quick. So they brought in the coach to make sure they could get that done in that shorter amount of time. So it all – at least it all like makes a – it makes sense. It makes like a through line. So I don't know if like, yeah, blame should really be thrown on on Alden here. You know, I just think that that everything was just too loose for him. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. And by the way, so now we have to add like the caveat to all this, right? Because so far – Two different sources have come out to debunk this. You know, there's a spokesman for Lord and Miller who who said that all the information in this report is quote unquote completely inaccurate. And then also Chris Lord himself later that day after this hit the web took to the Twitter and said, uh, maybe don't believe everything you read. So, you know, so for what it's worth, this is being refuted by Lord and Miller you know, I, I don't expect them to have said anything less than that, but still, you know, it's, so that's why you should take some of these comments with a grain of salt. But either way, it's something that I think makes sense. I do think it's interesting. And if it's true that they wanted him to really feel like a young version of the Han Solo we know already, I, for one, am very happy to hear that. Um, well, let me ask you, Brett, before we wrap things up here, do, do, do you watch Westworld? I do watch Westworld. That was the longest. See, I don't watch ever. all bad things. 
Okay, so you do watch Westworld. Uh, did, did you see the season two trailer? I did, and I am so excited. I am so excited. Yeah, like, what, what did you think? What, what are your impressions of what we've seen so far of season two? Yeah, I'm excited. Like, I mean, the first season was tremendous. I, I I was absolutely in love and captivated by, you know, what did there. The second season is really picking up right where that first season ended. It's continuing, um, you know, kind of these uh, these androids, whatever you want to call them, like they're, they're you know, ascendance into sentience um, and what that means to them. And, oh, it's, it's just so cool. And then we actually got to see some some more shots of Shogun World. So there is a, you know, a, a more um, Japanese themed version of the park uh, with complete with samurai and geisha. And we saw more of that. And I'm super excited now to see, you know, the different areas of the park and, you know, what they're going to use that to say about us as humans and our world. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a, a robot uprising, basically. And that's everything I want. It looks like they'll also be um, you might have catched. Uh, some glimpses of Jimmy Simpson. Um, so yep. they are still going to be doing some of that timeline flashback uh, kind of stuff, which I thought was very, very effective and 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 done very, very well. Uh, it, there's a tendency when some shows do that, it can be very cheap. Uh, the Walking Dead does that a lot with the flash yeah. forward, flashback kind of things. And they do it uh, because they don't know, they just don't care anymore, <laughs> I think is what it is. Uh, Jonathan Nolan, uh, you know, who and Lisa Joy, who are producing, and I think Jonathan Nolan has been writing a lot of it as well. They are using it to very great effect um, and uh, in a very intriguing way. So um, I'm just super excited. That cast is absolutely phenomenal. Um, Jeffrey Jeffrey um, Wright is tremendous. Um, so is uh, well, I'm, uh, Evan Rachel Wood. Um, you got uh, what's his face? Ed Harris. Oh my God! Like. I'm so excited for the show to come back. <laughs> this was one of the shows that like literally just captivated me every week. I'm like, I need to know what happens next. The internet went crazy with with rumors and speculation on what's going to happen. And and uh, yeah, I for one and I'm, I love everything I see. Also, shout out. They did a uh, piano and string instrumental version of Heart Shaped Box oh by Nirvana God, in the trailer. Yeah. And it was so good. <laughs> That's the best use of that song ever, I feel like. You know, because it's perfect. When we're talking about synthetic humans, to have a song about heart-shaped box, I think that's just brilliant, and it just works so yeah, well. Yeah, and they've done a lot of that yeah, in the season. Yeah. In the first season, too, there's a lot of little, like, old-timey piano versions of popular songs. Yeah, they had which Black Hole yeah, just, Sun just by, uh, yeah, Black yes, by Soundgarden yes. done on piano. It was amazing. But, okay, so in terms of, of, of the second trailer, well, what it did for me, actually, I should say this trailer for the second season, uh, in terms of what it did for me, it made me feel like, shit, I have to go rewatch season one again. <laughs> because it's, I feel yes, like it's been so long. Yeah, like, because remember, the, the, it, it, I, it wrapped up in 2017. So it's not like one of these movies, it's not, it's not one of these series where like, all right, you know, the 2017, now season two comes in 2018, and season three comes in 2019. They took like an epic break here. So I feel like I, I'm going to have uh, 2016, to you mean? They wrapped up in 2016. No, they didn't. You t you sit on a throne of lies. Either way, it's been a very long time. It was like a year and a half. I'm going to just double yeah. check it right now. Let's right. just get down to the bottom of this. Or it was very early in 2017 that it yeah. ended. Like regardless, uh -huh. like the, the seeing the trailer made me feel like I have to go back and rewatch season one because I'm a little bit lost. Um, and then second of all, I, I had like one slight concern. I'm, you know, listen, I'm very excited and mm -hmm. I loved pretty much everything I saw. But there's a part of me that's like, 
it almost looks like they they they're they're going almost too big and and too like ambitious with with where they're going here. Like I I loved it having it confined to Westworld and meeting the tourists who come in there and try to play cowboy and all this different you know the, this whole interesting metaphysical question of you know what is the soul and what is it to be human and whatever. I kind of liked it as a contained sort of metaphor. And with the trailer, as you could see, it's going to spill over into the real world quite a bit with, you know, it just to me, I'm like, I hope that it doesn't lose or, or go too big or too grand in scope. And we lose some of the more intimate stuff that really spoke to me. But overall, I mean, well, I think Sandy Newton's storyline is going to be that more intimate thing that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, following her, you know, looking for her daughter that, you know, and everything there, there's actually a little interesting line in there where she's like, where's my daughter? And this guy goes, that's not your daughter. It's just someone we programmed to be. And yeah. she's like, I want to see my daughter. Like, so I think it's almost like she's going to be kind of co continuing some of that more intimate storytelling through her storyline. And it looks like Evan Rachel Wood and Jeffrey Wrights is going to be kind of the more bigger expanding, uh, out, you know, you know, um, yeah. version of the story. Um, and, and actually just to, to chime in, um, yes, the last episode of Westworld aired December 4th, 2016. That's unbelievable. So it's been a year, almost like a year and a half. So it's been actually a pretty long time. And it hasn't really been, back you know, one year, one this year. year. I think, I don't think, I think the premiere, no, no, for April Westworld 22nd, oh, April 22nd. So yeah, I mean, that is April a long ass time. Yeah. That is a long ass time, so and 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 that, that puts a lot of pressure on me now because if I, if I have to rewatch that season, I've only got like three weeks to do it. But either way, um, I'm excited for Westworld season two. I hope they don't go so big that now like it, it sort of suffocates under it. You know, it gets crushed under its own weight. But overall, I would say I'm way in on it. Um, now I'm going to wrap things up with my recommendations. I'm going to read a couple of reviews. And Brett, I'm going to keep you here for this because, you know, uh, I like having you around. Um, <laughs> so my recommendation this week, since we're talking about, you know, there was a lot of Ready Player One chatter and talking about Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg and, you know, and singular visions and sequels and all this sort of stuff. To me, the, the, the perfect recommendation for a week like this is, in my mind, the best sequel, one of the best sequels ever made which did its own sort of world building, but was all part of a great singular vision. And that is Back to the Future 2. Back to the Future 2, I think, uh, you know, I, I just, I love that movie. And if you're thinking about Zemeckis and Spielberg and, and Alan Silvestri and all that sort of stuff, I couldn't think of a better movie for you to watch. I'm, I'm sure most of you have seen it, uh, but I would just say that it's a perfect companion piece for on a week when we're talking about Ready Player One to check out Back to the Future 2. Um, also, the uh, the podcast has gotten a couple of new reviews, and I am floored and humbled, and it's just, you know, I, I'm amazed whenever people feel this strongly about what I'm doing here. So I'm going to go ahead and read them. And by the way, you know, if, uh, if you have yet to leave me a review... Please do so soon. It's um, you know, it's it really helps the show grow. My view, my my listenership has been getting bigger and stronger uh, with each week, with each passing month. So I want to thank thank everyone who's taken the time to do it so far. And if you haven't yet, please do do it. But all right, so these two new five star reviews. One comes from John D. Nicola. He gave it five stars. The title of the review is excellent. 
He said, I have been listening to Mario as well as his Revengers podcast. Hey, see, Brett, there you go. Since the beginning Woo-hoo. of this year and have thoroughly enjoyed them. He is passionate, articulate, and provides great insight and thought into what is going on in the comic book slash movie world. He also brings integrity and character to what he reports and discusses and should certainly be deemed in the upper echelon of the current onslaught on fanboy podcasts. Thank you, Mario. Always a pleasure. Thank you, John, for saying that. That's, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to hear and read and just thank you. Um... Then there's Rod Pena. Rod Pena. Might be a Pena like me. I'm not sure. But he put uh, five stars. He titled it, It Has Heart. Tienes Corazón. He says, listening to this show, you get the notion that not only does Mario know what he is talking about, but that he also cares. There is a lot of love put into this podcast, and it shows. The personal stories also add a touch that make you feel and understand where he is coming from when he is talking about various subject matters within fanboy culture. Even when Mario says something I don't entirely agree with, he doesn't come off like a malicious person or mean or douchebaggy like a lot of CBM bloggers slash journalists out there. This is a guy that is understanding, respectful, and just gets it. Mario, you have a new subscriber in me. Keep up the excellent work and never lose that heart. Un corazón de oro es fuerte porque es un corazón primero. Stay up, manito. Rod. Rod, thank you so much. Uh, Really, that's, I mean, that's some of the highest praise I could ever ask for. And I really, you know, it, it's, it means a lot to me that, that, that you walk away feeling that way from this, this little show that I put together here every week. So everyone, thanks for, for joining Brett and I for, for episode 55 of the El Fanboy podcast. Brett, thanks for coming on and helping me make up for the, the lack of a Revengers podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, and we will be back next week. You know, me, Brett, and Vanessa with the Revengers podcast that will be going up on uh, Tuesday afternoon, regularly scheduled programming. And uh, for everyone else, until next week, adios.